Have you thought this through? No way will that work. Are you sure? Is there any money in that? You'll never make any money doing that. How are you going to pay the mortgage? Just get a job. You're going to try to sell that? Why can't you be normal like anybody else? All right. Were your parents morons too? Savvy entrepreneur to the rescue! Congratulations, that really turned out well. I'm a really good job. I'm really I'm really You know, I wish I'd thought of that. I never thought anyone would. How did you do that? I'm so glad you're here to your I wish I had the courage to follow my friends. Hello, everybody. Welcome to all you entrepreneurs. This is the Savvy Entrepreneur Radio Show. And we are broadcasting on WLCB 101.5 FM from the greater Chicago, Milwaukee area. I'm your host, Doris Nagel. And why am I here? Well, because, quite frankly, I'm a crazy entrepreneur myself. And my passion is to help other entrepreneurs. I've counseled lots of startups and small businesses as part of my law and consulting practice over the past 30 years. I've also started or helped start at least nine different businesses. Along the way, I've seen lots of mistakes, and candidly, I myself have made lots of them. So my passion, as I said, is to share some of those mistakes and find others who are also willing to share their advice and insights. As always, I welcome your comments, your questions, and suggestions. If there's a topic you'd like to hear about, a challenge you're having, I'll do my best to find you an answer. If you want to be a guest or know someone who would be a great guest, just email me at dnagel, N-A-G-E-L, at lakesradio.org. The show will be better for your input. And now, without further ado, I'd like to introduce our guest for today. Joining me by phone is Angela Spinazze, who will share the story of how she built her nonprofit consulting firm, which she calls At Spin. She describes herself as a humanist, a designer of conversations, and a steward of participatory processes, working with artists, nonprofits, government agencies, and private foundations, primarily in the area of cultural heritage. Angela started her career at the Art Institute of Chicago, where she worked on direct email campaigns and planned special events. From there, she went on to manage the conversion of the index card file there, representing approximately 150,000 works of art into electronic format, and helped the Art Institute develop an inventory process. Later, she served as director of marketing for a software company where she co-developed two Windows-based applications for collections management. She founded her company at Spin in 1997. Initially, her work focused on museums and the technologies they need. Over the years, the scope of her work has continued to expand and exclude explorations with mid-career and established artists. So I'm sure we'll hear more about that. That sounds like a very interesting evolution, Angela. She is a certified top facilitator, T-O-P. Again, maybe we'll have a chance to talk about what that means. She's a graduate of Miami University of Ohio and has lived in Chicago since she was four, although she says she did live in Montreal, Canada for a period, which also must have been a pretty interesting time. She's an avid traveler and her friends tell her she is a wonderful cook. So with that introduction, Angela, 
Welcome to the Savvy Entrepreneur. Thanks so much for being here today. Thanks, Doris. Um, wow, that's really some introduction. It's really interesting to hear yourself described by someone else. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> a very interesting corner of the market, I guess I would say. I think a lot of people probably don't think about some of the challenges that historical museums and art institutes and art galleries and places like that, the technology transition that a lot of them needed to go through to really bring their whole collection management into the, the 20th century or 21st century. Is that something that is still ongoing with organizations? Oh, absolutely. It was a, it, it's definitely something, um, collections online, for example, you know, being able to go to a museum's website and see what's in the collection, all of the collections, not just what's on display in the galleries. So if you think of, say, uh, I was just at the Field Museum the other day, right? So there are millions and millions and millions of specimens and archaeological uh, artifacts and cultural artifacts, objects from, you know, Native American cultures and others, dinosaur bones plant specimens, and very, very small percentage of that is really on display at any one time in a museum. Really? Um, so, like, like what, what percentage? Would you say it's like 50%? No, 10%? like like 1% or less. What? That's amazing. <laughs> That's incredible. It yeah, it is pretty incredible. You know, the smaller the institution, maybe with a smaller collection, the greater the number. But it really never, at least um, in my experience, the numbers really hover. The one percent mark is is pretty accurate. So that so, that makes it all the more important that you know what you have exactly. that's not on display, so that when you're changing out exhibits and things uh, for cleaning or just to make them fresh and new, you, you don't even know what you have when you're talking about that kind of a, you know, that kind of an inventory. Exactly. And uh, and you think of the research, you know, we don't often think of the research that goes on at museums. They're scholarly institutions. They're about learning. They're about uh, gathering information, turning it into knowledge. So um, uh, the early days that I was involved with creating software applications for managing collections, was about exactly that. We started it with a physical inventory at the Art Institute of Chicago to actually take a comprehensive physical inventory of 150,000 plus works of art uh, takes a number of years. So it started out being a very practical um, management type software. And now, of course, there are interactives in museums. There are virtual reality uh, immersion experiences in museums. Technologies are used in a, a lot of different ways now. Very, very interesting. A whole kind of corner of the world that probably most people don't have much visibility to or even think about or maybe even appreciate when you go to visit a museum. How did you get started with your business? Uh, so you started, you went to school at the Art Institute of Chicago, and so you obviously had a love of the arts and of things artistic and cultural, but how did you go from that to founding your own business? Well, uh, it was a it was a journey, as you say. It was a process of arriving at a point where um, I had spent a lot of time working with new technologies. I had, you know, run this project, a portion of this project at the Art Institute of Chicago. So I was really 
the person who was uh, responsible for the conversion of these cards. If you think of the old library card catalog, museums used to have the same sort of thing for objects in the museum, works of art, um, depending on where you were. And um, so I had done that work. I had worked with all the curatorial departments to help facilitate the uh, taking of the inventory. Um, I then went to a small little for-profit that was making software as well, and I just got frustrated. Uh, you know, I got to a point in my career where I wasn't growing, and I needed to do something different for myself professionally. And, of course, I saw an opportunity because this was, again, a time where a lot of museums of all shapes and sizes were we're looking to use technologies in new ways and especially around collections management. So I saw an opportunity to provide a service that I knew how to do. I had a lot of experience in it and I was sort of kind of at the point where I didn't really want to be designing software anymore. I think that's part of it too, right? You kind of think, well, but the thing I really like to do is I like to help I like to help these, you know, work with these different collections. I get to learn a lot. I'm somebody who sort of followed my curiosity. So I struck out on my own because it was, you know, because I because I could and there were there were people out there who I knew colleagues who, of course, were willing to hire me to come in and say, hey, could you do that thing you did over there for us? Well, the last bit is probably a really important piece of it, because there are people who develop a certain expertise and connections within a part of the marketplace, whatever that that is. And. A lot of people make their careers going from one employer to another employer doing similar things, but but different. So I think the interesting part, at least for me, is you probably could have gone to work for another large museum or art institute, but you chose to go the yes. route of being a solopreneur or to start your own business. Talk a little bit more about the thinking there. Well, that's a really great question. It's true. I could have probably bounced around from place to place to place. I think part of it had to do with the fact that my own personality, I'm really a curious person. I love to learn from others. And what I found really intriguing was I thought, wow, what I could actually do is embed myself in different environments with the, you know, the expertise that I've accumulated. But then every different kind of place that I'm in lends, right, uh, an opportunity for me to learn and to add on to my own expertise. So working in an art museum, fine art museum, is very different than being in a natural history museum or working with a group of conservation scientists or working on public art. So there's, there's, you know, you learn something in terms of the subject area, but also the way the institutions work internally. And I think I really liked providing that sort of outside perspective, and I could be neutral. Um, I also didn't have to get involved in the internal politics. <laughs> no, I was just going to say, having been part of the gig economy for a long time, I did some projects where I was embedded in a, in a couple of companies. And I really enjoyed it because I did not have to spend time getting involved with the politics very much. It was it was really quite refreshing. And even when even even when the organizations tried, I would emphasize to them, look, you're paying me for X. Does this add <laughs> to mm -hmm. X? Right. And they would inevitably say, yeah, well, you're right. You don't 
you don't need to be part of all of this. Well, and also I think what you, at least I think from, I know when I think back to, um, you know, how I was situated in a lot of these scenarios, right, working with my colleagues, I also could advocate for exactly what you're saying is the topic at hand, right? What we were trying to do was organize collections, make it easier to manage them and provide greater access to them both internally and externally. And so that could be my sole focus. And I could advocate for the importance of that work and that, you know, by bringing a group of people together and, and typically it was a multidisciplinary group even within a, within a museum. Mm-hmm. So we had, you know, the librarian was there and the software engineers were there and the educators were there and curators were there and administration, you know, were, uh, was represented. But we could really focus on the collections and providing access to them and, you know, and, and doing the work of the museum. So it's true. And I also think I'm not all that great at, pol- at the office politics. So I could be an advocate for, you know, let's just keep our focus here. Yes, we have to work with that. But, you know, let's figure out a way to do it in a positive way. It's interesting. I share that, that I I just, I've never been very good at office politics and I never enjoyed that part of working in an organization. And it seems like whenever you get more than about three people in a room, it starts to be an inevitable part of of group thing or group dynamics. But, you know, the other thing I'm interested if you felt this as well, is that I felt freer to sometimes express more controversial opinions. Mm. In other words, I didn't feel like I had to sometimes I think groupthink starts to starts to come into play in organizations and sometimes you really need a person to say, "What? What are mm-hmm. you talking about? This makes no sense." Let's right. step back here for a minute. And I think when you're not an employee and you're not worried about keeping your job or being fired or demoted or not promoted or whatever, it gives you some freedom to be able to do that. Did you find that as well? Yes, I, I definitely would agree with that. I think that, um, you know, again, you get to you, you really can help remind people that you're coming in with an outside perspective and exactly that. What? You know, you there's a there's an ability there to, you know, raise your hand or have an expression on your face or, you know, say it out loud where where you I don't know. There's a it is a freedom. I think that's a great word to use there where when the time is right to be able to express something in a way, it might even be through a question. Mm-hmm. You know, as you were saying earlier, you know, is that the best use of our time here? You know, is that really what this is all about? And also, I think to to sometimes call for a halt of when you're going down a tangent. So, yeah. you know, a lot of times, you know, these projects, they take on a life of their own and then they sort of, you know, it, it's sometimes even without thinking groups will steer them in a different direction. You kind of have to say, you know, hold on here for a minute. Let's just think if we go down that road, you know, is that really going to actually benefit what we're trying to get done here? Um, right. So I think there's both. You can you can definitely help keep things on track. And yes, you can a- ask the questions that everyone's afraid to ask or no one wants to ask because they're afraid of the repercussions of having asked it. <laughs> um, well, and, and I think sometimes consultants are brought in with the expectation that they will bring a different perspective. So yes. yeah. you almost have permission from the get go to say, no, I'm not sure that's right. 
Right, exactly. Right. It doesn't mean, though, that just because you say that, that that's, you know, you hold oh, yeah. sway and that's what's going to happen. <laughs> right. But right. At least it All can right. be out there. It can be out there on the record. And um, and you can also encourage conversations that need to happen that people are sort of tiptoeing around. That's the other right. thing. Right. So right. you can um, really press and bring something up over and over and over and over again. And I don't mind being called the broken record. You know, oh, that's Angela. She's asking that question again. You know, she's having us go there again. And it's like, right. well, we haven't resolved that yet. So, yes, that's what I'm doing. <laughs> well, and, and sometimes I, I think with larger organizations especially, it may take patience and persistence. But it is amazing how you can make changes in an organization over time just yes. just by being the pain in the butt, by being the broken record, by having conversations with enough people offline that things actually you can see change. And that's, I think, often what we independent consultants, at least as service providers, find very rewarding. Absolutely. And it, right, we get to bring in new methods for, you know, I talk about, you know, a lot of the work that I've done has been focused on participation, right, that we actually end up with a better result, the more voices and perspectives that are brought to the table. It may take longer, as you say, but also the way you work, I've seen this repeatedly with, with uh, groups that I've worked with, the ways in which we work, the way in which the project is structured, how the meetings are organized, the questions that are asked, you know, sort of the sequence of uh, activities, that gets internalized. I, I, when I was doing my collections management works really so solely that, I used to say, my goal is to work myself out of a job here so that you all feel comfortable, you know, with this new approach and the new way of working and that every single person who's participated is actively contributing and has the piece of knowledge that they came in with, but they also have something that they've gained. And that way there is, you know, there's a solid foundation there. Then I can, you know, it's time for me to leave and move on to the next thing, but you can carry on and there's a consistency moving forward and it's sustainable. It's, it's hugely important. And I think that's really where the real change happens, right, is people change how they work with one another. Yeah, I, I agree. All right. So I have to ask, how did you come up with the name at Spin Consulting, A-T-S-P-I-N for our listeners? I'm assuming the spin part has something to do with your last name. Right. It's all a play on my name. So it's my first it's my initials, A, T and S. And then S-P-I-N is the first part of my surname. And most people can't pronounce it anyway. So I really didn't want to have my full name in there. So I was just <laughs> kind of, you know, it was one of those things, a conversation with a group of friends. And I had fiddled around with a bunch of things. And I think back, you know, uh, in 1997, coming up with a, some sort of an esoteric name about museums and technology really wasn't resonating with me because I didn't want to be pigeonholed. So I also thought, well, let's just make it fun. And at Spin Consulting is what, what stuck. Gotcha. <laughs> well, what's a pr typical project for you look like? Although it sounds like typical might be a little hard to, to pin down because of the variety of things that you do, but maybe talk about a couple of example projects that give listeners an idea of the range of things that you do. Sure. Gosh, there is a wide variety, but um, so one that I might talk a little bit about was 
work that I, I did a, a couple of years ago, actually, with the um, Office of International Relations at the Smithsonian, which was really neat, um, a group called the Cultural Heritage Coordinating Committee. And they were putting together a symposium with 13 of their colleagues in different federal agencies of the government to focus on cultural heritage protection around the world. And so that was an instance where we came in and actually worked with all of the team members from those different agencies to design a two-day symposium that brought together a whole wide cadre of people from academic and law enforcement and museums and you name it, consulates and you know people working around the world. And that took about, um, I would say, six months. Right. We worked together on a regular basis. We had a core design team. Uh, we went through a series of exercises, a set of questions. Everybody weighed in and then we crafted an agenda where each of the groups were able to have a representative amount of time to highlight work that they were working on. And then we did um, reflections after each of the sets of presentations so people could talk about. We ended up with about four or five different topics um, in terms of cultural heritage preservation that they wanted to tap into. So so that was a really interesting project. More recently here in the state of Illinois, um, just this past year, I worked with a group at the um, Illinois Student Assistance Commission, and we did a, uh, uh, a set of workshops around um, their, you know, strategies for where they're headed. And this is the group that uh, does things like um, they manage the MAP grants for students looking for financial aid to get into colleges and universities after uh, high school. Yeah, so it's a really interesting commission. It's been around since the 60s, but it's filled with a lot of really young people um, who have got tons of ideas about, you know, how to engage with high schoolers and their families to help them get the resources that they need. So you can imagine, right, at government agencies, there's a lot of constraints, but then, you know, uh, a lot of times those constraints can really help fuel creativity. So we had a really interesting couple of days there. So that was a very short timetable, right? We did a design with a small group. Again, I like to work with a small design team up front to kind of craft what the experience is going to be and what are the key questions we need to ask. And then, um, you know, we pick a set of exercises. I did this particular work with a colleague of mine here in Chicago. And, you know, so we worked through what are the actual exercises that we wanted the group to go through so that we could get the outcomes that they needed. And, and it, you know, it was amazing what happened in a couple of days. They had a roadmap for the next two years. They had uh, team leaders, you know, assign, who self-assigned themselves to, you know, lead some of these initiatives. They had uh, selected some people internally to actually help facilitate the rollout. That was really great. So that mm. was a lot of fun. So, you know, that's a smaller project, a larger project. And then just the other day, I was working with a colleague who is a um, a uh, librarian who started a couple of years ago, she started a literacy nonprofit to try to help um, insert into um, uh, that, how do I describe it? She's all about books and getting books to children and families with family members who uh, are incarcerated. She actually uh, runs a book club at the county jail and, you know, works with, uh, you know, how do we make sure that families read together and read with each other and so that young kids hear their 
their family members reading to them and they can read back. So it's really interesting. And she's got a small little, you know, it's a small group of people who are working on this. And so um, I've been working with her for the past couple of years just to keep that nonprofit. You know, it's hard. This is another thing, right? It's you small, small, small nonprofit. You're just getting off the ground. So how do you stay focused on all those things you need to do in a given year just to move forward in, you know, getting the nonprofit established? I was going to ask you a little later, but I think this might be a great segue to talk a little bit about some of the challenges of working with nonprofits. Having been involved with a number of them myself, including being a board member on a couple of them, there is a huge range of professionalism and focus and Yes. Balancing that passion for whatever the nonprofit's mission is with actually doing stuff that matters is it is hard right. for a lot of these organizations. It is, I think, because, right, as you say, right, passion fuels the work. And so um, a lot of times passion gets in the way <laughs> of being productive. <laughs> and um, I don't think I think that that is uh, out of a genuine right. It's it's out of this genuine desire to do good in the world. Um, and I think um, what what uh, sometimes happens is, is if that fuels everything, then it's really hard to be disciplined about the things that you really need to do in order to advance and and realize again realize that change so you go from an idea you know to something that's been turned into a little bit of an organization and then but what does it mean to actually grow it and not grow right. for the sake of growing right grow because uh, you understand now you have a need how do you i think that's one of the hardest things how do you balance your programming programming activities which is where your passion is with the administrivia i mean it's sort of one of the things i say to anybody whether you're in a nonprofit or you're just running your own businesses you know you've got to come to love the administrivia all of that little stuff that makes the work work <laughs> that's behind right. the scenes that you can't see and i feel like that's really again that's the that's the gap that i fill which is to sort of slow the process down and to work with people to realize the importance of those things and to keep them in balance with everything else. Because it's really right. easy to just, you know, like, oh my gosh, the house is on fire. We've got to go over here. And a lot of times all that does is sap energy. I think nonprofits are really, the ones that are, you know, actively working well are smart and they take time to plan. I think that's the other thing that it yeah. seems like, oh, no, we don't have any time to do this. But actually, if you don't do it, <laughs> um, right, it's not about being tied to your plan. It's not about it's supposed to weigh you down. You know, if it's an active living plan, it means you're integrating it into all that you're doing so that you're constantly sort of doing that self-check. And that's like that's sort of like exercise. You have to develop that muscle um, and that muscle memory. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, I like yeah. the way I like the way you put it. You have to learn to love administrivia. I didn't know I didn't know that was a word, so I learned something new too. But I love it. <laughs> I'm going to use it again. Okay. Uh, but you have to learn to love it, and that may mean either loving it and forcing yourself to do it and taking pride in doing it, or it may mean that you just you value it enough that you hire someone else or delegated to someone else to do exactly a bit more so but either way if you don't value it it won't it won't happen the way it's supposed to i agree with you that's right yeah and then all that stuff you know it, it, it just accumulates over time and that's what ends up being you know it gets in the way yeah um, it does it does angela 
we need to take a quick break. So hold your thoughts for a moment. Folks, we'll be right back with Angela Spinetze from Atbin Consulting in just a few minutes. But right now, we need to take a break for a word from our sponsors and for station identification. Welcome back, everybody. This is Doris Nagel. I'm the host of The Savvy Entrepreneur, and you are listening to our interview with our guest today with Angela Spinetze, who's the principal and founder of her company called Atspin Consulting. And she's sharing the story of how she built her nonprofit consulting business. So Angela, before the break, we were talking about some of your typical projects, but let's talk about the business itself. What's been, in your mind, the hardest thing about having your own business? Oh, gosh. I think the hardest thing is it, it's changed over time. In the beginning, it was to just to just do it. Um, the hardest thing was, okay, I, I think I want to do this and to make it happen. Now, I think the hardest thing is it's important to not be only talking to myself <laughs> about how my business might be relevant, how it might grow, you know, how I could be even more creative in what I do and how I do it. So I think, what, you know, I, what does that mean? Not only talking to yourself. Well, Elaborate on that. I think of it in terms of uh, it's not always, it's not necessarily only up to me to come up with ideas about, you know, how to be out there um, talking to people about what I do. Right. Mm. So relying on my colleague, my trusted colleagues, right, regularly making myself have regular conversations, checking in with people who I care about their opinion and asking them, you know, what are you seeing out there? You know, you know, the kind of work that I do or we've worked together before. What are you seeing? Is there something that I'm not noticing out there where there might be a need? Or, you know, is the landscape shifting? Um, what I've noticed recently is that some of the things that I used to do early on back in the 90s are now coming back again as being topics. Um, and I think participation is one of them. You know, how do we engage people in decision making that's participatory as opposed to top down, right? Facilitative leadership is really coming back into um, our conversation. And I think the in terms of the technology part of my work, you know, the ways in which we use technology today is different, of course, but there were lessons that we learned from when we worked with it 20 years ago that are relevant today. So I think that's sort of like, maybe that's just keeping your finger on the pulse is a different way to say that. But sometimes, you know, we can't really see things if we're in the midst of them. Well, things are changing rapidly, particularly anything related to technology. It is quite a challenge for every business, every nonprofit, government agencies too, to, to keep track of where the technology might be headed and because it's often expensive to implement technological changes to make sure that you're, you know, you're investing wisely and keep, while you're keeping up. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I think, you know, when you're working on your own, it's, it, I think another big, uh, you know, challenge is to uh, feel comfortable enough to shift your focus or perspective into a different direction. I've done that a couple of times and it's scary the first time you decide to do it, you know, to be able to say, well, I work on, well, in the beginning when I think about, you know, when I first started, I was doing a lot of database conversions. Well, you know, that work's really been done. 
So at a certain point in time, that wasn't going to be my future anymore because realistically couldn't be. So, you know, how do you actually, again, that thing of self-reflection, how do you take into account what it is that you've done, the accumulation of your experience, but then be, you know, prepare for, be ready for, and, you know, sort of take a leap of faith, if you will, right, towards <laughs> either introducing a new skill set or, um, you know, sort of being able to, say out loud, well, I don't do that anymore. I think it's hard to say that. Uh, It's scary. Yeah. So how do you find most of your clients? Is it through networking, word of mouth? It is primarily. It's word of mouth. It's networking. It's um, people who have participated in, uh, you know, workshops that I've led or meetings that I've led, you know, the symposium that I led, you know, last year with the Smithsonian, you know, that kind of thing. So people being in the audience and then coming up afterwards and saying, oh, gosh, this was so interesting. You know, that thing you did, you know, my organization, maybe we could use something like that. Or, um, you know, I like how much information we got through in such a short period of time. We, we need some help with that. So a lot of it is that I talk to a lot of people and I, you know, networking is great. And, you know, thankfully, I have a, a also a good, you know, again, a good network of people who who say to people my name when they ask the question, who do you think we should talk to about? you know, mm-hmm. uh, working on our strategic plan together or helping us plan the symposium or we've got this project that we've been trying to do for the past three years. It's just really not working. We can't seem to get it off the ground. We don't know why, you know, who can we talk to about getting it back on track? What does your ideal client look like? What, what makes for a really good client for you? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I think the biggest thing is the an openness to trying something that they haven't done before. So I think there's a lot of, um, you know, sort of best practice. This is what we need to do to do our strategic plan. Uh, And someone told us, you know, it's in a book and, you know, we have to do it that way. (laughs) And um, I like to work with clients who are that are open to creativity and they're open to trying things that are different. And even if they're a little squirmy about it, like, I'm not so sure uh, (laughs) that um, they're willing to give it a go, right. That we can craft something that, and just test it out. Sometimes it doesn't work. You know, sometimes it works like a charm, but I do think that that being open, being open and being open to creativity is really, really helpful. On the flip side, are there some kinds of clients over the years that you've learned or decided to steer away from? And and if so, how do you handle that? That's also, uh, that's a great question. It's also, um, right, there's kind of no right answer. Um, I have, uh, I, I'm not sure I can even put it into words. Um, I, I go into every opportunity, open and optimistic and positive that there's a possibility. But typically there's something that happens along the way that um, it makes me realize that, you know, sort of what they're saying and what they actually are willing to do are two different things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that um, uh, I'm not sure that there's, you know, groups that I intentionally avoid, but I would say that there's sort of keywords that when I hear them, it's like, oh, OK, so they're just they just want to go through the motions. Well, I'm just speaking maybe from my own experience, because I, in the past, one of the mistakes I've made is not being clear enough about the persona of the client or customer that I really wanted to serve. And as a result, Mm -hmm. I spent a lot of time in conversations with potential clients who, frankly, weren't a good fit. 
had I okay. only been a little more discerning from the beginning. And I guess I was just curious whether all right whether that resonates with you. Well, I mean, I think maybe that just maybe your question the the way I could answer it stems from the focal points, right? I've been, you know, I've I don't work, for example, with you know um, nonprofits that are working in medicine, you know. Um, I so it, for me, it's mostly subject matter, I would say, because I have a real um, love for the arts and um, you know museums, archives, and libraries, cultural institutions, performing. I work a lot with performing arts organizations. And government agencies, you know, sort of come into this as well because of the create the creative mix of what they're trying to do, right? They have a they're a certain size, they have a direction they're going, they have constraints on them, and they need to find ways that are creative to problem solve. So I guess maybe I gravitate towards, you know, organizations that are working in a, in specific spheres of or specific disciplines more than anything else. I you know, and I don't know if that's just conscientiously pushing other things away more than it is there's just an affinity there and it's it, it's a it, those are worlds that i understand hmm. well it may just be that you're in tune enough at a at a subconscious level that you you've already zeroed in at a very deep level whether this organization is one that you can really help or not from probably from early conversations and my guess is that's come over the years it's evolved over the years as you've worked with lots of different groups. Yeah, it's true. I mean, uh, I think that is true. You, you, I, I, there, you know, there are questions in my head that come. I ask a lot of questions. <laughs> and I really do a lot of upfront work. And a lot of times, you know, that in and of itself, groups will just sort of back off and disappear. And, you know, I don't always know mm. why. But sometimes it's because I'm asking, you know, you're you know, asking hard it's... questions. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And they, may not, and they may not be prepared to confront some of those hard things. That's right. That's right. Well, so not every business, in fact, really none that I know of small businesses are all sunshine and rainbows and unicorns. What What are some of the the biggest roadblocks that you've encountered over the years, just in terms of running and managing your business? And what do you do to get through those rough patches? Well, that's a really great question. I think one of the biggest things is that you can't control the cycle of work <laughs> when you work for yourself, right? Yeah. Um, so there are really a lot of ups and downs in terms of I can be super busy and then, you know, there's this sort of... Uh, Crickets chirping? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> that's a really great way to put it, right? And in the when I first started out on my own, I wasn't really thinking about that. Um, it hadn't actually occurred to me because, of course, one of the reasons why I started the business is because there was work. So uh, I think that is where it's that um, the advice I give out to others I have to take to myself, which is plan. I have to plan. I, I have my own plan for my work, for my business, for where I want to see, you know, uh, we're going. And um, that has to take into account these challenges that the work is not consistent. And so um, to actually have already outlined some things that I can be working on during those times of the crickets, right? <laughs> so to look at that as an opportunity instead of uh, oh my being, God, what am I going to do? Exactly. And started, instead of being nervous about it, because that's how I was in the very beginning. I was like, oh my gosh, now what? 
you know, here right. I am. I, I have right. no control over this, right? Right. Um, but of course, you can use it as creative time for yourself. You can um, do, you know, lots of different things in terms of um, updating materials and 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 networking and and learning. Um, you know, it's it's that your our own professional development where you know, gosh, I can go to the seminar instead of teaching the seminar. I can go to the workshop instead of teaching the workshop. So. It's right. but it, that's a, that's a scary that's a scary it can be a very scary cycle. So I think being prepared for it is one of the things I would say. You know that's not it's never comfortable, but if you can do things to prepare for it. And then I think the other thing I like to cook, and I like to be outside in nature. And those are my two ways to sort of also manage and mitigate those things. Which is if I can prepare a meal and have a bunch of people over, you know, and have some really terrific conversation and energy that really energizes me. It doesn't always feel like uh, you know I'm it's productive that I'm doing it for my work, but sometimes, you know, you're doing it for your own psyche because you need to be well, around people who support well, you. And when you are your business, I think that's something else that oftentimes I see solopreneurs forget is that they are their best asset. They are really <laughs> at the end of the day, the only asset. And if they exactly. don't take care of themselves and their mental health and their physical health, you know, what's it all for, really? Yeah, exactly. And I think that's just so much easier said than done. And so it's that thing. Exactly. You have to value it. I think you said this earlier, right? I mean, these are things these are uh, we have to value ourselves to the point of doing things like, you know, putting it in your calendar to go take a walk. Uh, you know, I know it's, it may sound silly, but it's really, really important. Because those are the loneliest times when you're when you're thinking, okay, I've just gone through this wave of fabulous activity. And also, I think being around people, you know, that thing of when you're working, especially um, when you come into groups or you're bringing a small group into a team, there's that camaraderie there. And then all of a sudden it's gone. And um, that's I think that's 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 tough. Those transitions from super active to less active. uh, They're really they're challenging. Well, and I'll speak again for myself, the transition of going from being needed every day to not being needed by that group of people anymore. Right. I mean, it's a little yeah. like sending my daughter off to college, you know, like, whoa, <laughs> what happened? Exactly, exactly. Who am yeah, I now? It's true, because all of a sudden, right, they were part of your world on a very regularly scheduled basis, right? And then all of a sudden, they're not. And um, and keeping in touch with people, right, over time. I mean, I, I really love it when um, groups that I've worked with, I'll hear from somebody and say, oh, my gosh, Angelo, you know, like, we're sending you this note. We thought of you the other day. Or I had someone uh, send me something not that long ago that was like, so-and-so was channeling you the other day. You know, she asked a question that oh. we all kind of looked at her and said that's an Angela question you know Um, so it's great to hear that but we don't hear it enough I think is you know really right absolutely that has been my experience too so listeners if you have a consultant or a service provider who's given you great service remember to give them a a virtual hug every now and then because it means a lot to us absolutely all right so Angela you you touched on something I would be interesting to talk about. You mentioned that you spend some of the downtimes working on planning and where you'd like your business to grow. Talk a little bit more about where you see your business going ideally. What what would you like it to look like in three years, five years? Well, I 
I'd like to see it, uh, you know, offering a slightly different um, mix of services. And so one of the things I've been spending some time doing is um, in addition to being able to provide facilitation services, I'm starting back again to do something I did a long time ago, which is workshops. So uh, instead of just, you know, again, arriving into a situation in, a, in, a, in an organization and helping out there to actually bring uh, multidisciplinary groups of people together who are all interested in learning some of these methods and teaching workshops about them. So I've been spending time doing that as, in terms of trying to add that into the mix of services that I offer. I'm starting to do some workshops on facilitative leadership and part of this technology of participation method um, that's, that I really like that I've started to use over the past few years. So that's part of it. And um, also to increase my own creativity. So I tend to do a lot of uh, local community, you know, work in my neighborhood and things. And I've done some uh, art projects over the year, like over the years, things like um, turning an abandoned um, dry cleaners into an art space. And uh, I'd like to, yeah, I'd like to work with, um, with other, with organizations that are interested in doing those kinds of things. So really more getting back to a little bit more project-based work. So if there's a group that's already active in a particular neighborhood and, you know, they want to transform a space or they want to um, expand a program, you know, and, and do it in a slightly different way. I'd like to use my own creativity, I think, a little bit more in the work that um, we're doing with Aspen Consulting. So that's a slightly, you know, doing project-based work that actually is about something that physically exists somewhere. I'd like to get back to that. So that's kind of the trajectory where I'm headed. Do you think you'll ever get tired of what you're working on? And if so, what else might you do? I sure hope not. I mean, <laughs> I haven't so far. Uh, so I think that's maybe a good indication of what the future holds. I think the fact that you are so flexible and willing to pivot means that you're always, your curiosity, I suspect, means you will always be evolving and growing and looking at different opportunities. That's my instinctive read just talking to you over the past several minutes. Yeah, that's great. I uh, I like being active. I like being out there. And, and it is true. I'm very curious. And so I tend to, uh, I like to indulge my curiosity, if you will. So I like to follow the things that I'm interested in and figure out, you know, what does that mean in terms of work? So I really hope that there will continue to be opportunities, you know, for me to work with organizations that are really trying to be creative, be open, be participatory and engaging, you know, with their audiences. So, well, we're almost out of time. The time with interesting guests like you just flies by, doesn't it? It sure does. <laughs> You've been in business now for over 20 years. And if you today were looking back, what would you tell your younger self, Angela, when you were starting out? What advice would you give her? Uh, let's see. I would say to her, believe in yourself. You really do have what it takes to do this. And um, be more open to calling on others for help mm. or support, maybe. Maybe it's not help, right? But it's, um, I think I was really took on, you know, oh, I have to do this myself. And I would actually encourage people to really, you know, call on your trusted colleagues. Uh, they are, they really want you to do that. And I think sometimes they don't know how to get involved. And I also go back to the, you know, love that administrivia. 
you really have to uh, <laughs> you really have to love it early on because <laughs> it makes all the difference. And um, one thing I would add, actually, that I think today um, I'm sort of sorry I have to keep saying this, and I want to I think I want to I want to say it for the listeners out there, which is as a woman, uh, it was really difficult for me 20 years ago, and we didn't talk about it then. And um, I think Doris, you know, through this experience of being able to speak with you, um, this is a perfect example of ways in which, you know, you're supporting women. But I think women, we really need to support each other and um, do it in more, uh, uh, just do it regularly. You know, whatever it is, the littlest, tiniest thing that you can do to help another woman uh, working in a, you know, in any kind of a business, any kind of a venture, she could use your help. I totally agree with that. You know, it's interesting, a footnote as we wrap up, which is that I originally started out wanting to have the show be about women entrepreneurs and and support for women entrepreneurs, but I couldn't I couldn't get enough guests to to have regular shows. Wow. Okay. My goodness. All right. Well, maybe we need to remedy that. So, all you women out there listening, <laughs> please send oh, Doris I mean, suggestions. Well, for and not interview. just entrepreneurs, but women who support entrepreneurs too. Yes. Um, and there, cause there's lots we need as, as entrepreneurs, we need support from lots of people, whether it's web designers or marketing support or accountants or lawyers or people to help us raise money, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of different ways, but if, there are those of you who are women-owned businesses or senior management who are women. Contact me because I would love to chat with you and feature your story. So as we wrap up, Angela, if people are interested in learning more about At Spin Consulting or they just want to reach out to connect with you to maybe meet you or explore sure. ideas with you, what's the best way to reach you? Uh, well, I think to learn a little bit about me, they can go to my website, which is atspin.com, A-T-S-P-I-N.com, or send me uh, an, uh, a message directly. My email address is A-T-S, my initials, at A-T-S-P-I-N.com. I'd love to hear from you. Thank you so much, Angela, for being on the show today and for sharing some of your experience and advice and stories. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Doris, for the opportunity. It's been a pleasure speaking with you, and I look forward to keeping in touch. I look forward to the same, and I hope our listeners have enjoyed talking with Angela just as much as I have. You can listen to an on-demand recording, a podcast of today's show, along with other free information and resources for entrepreneurs. You can either go to the Savvy Entrepreneur show page at lakesradio.org or to my consulting website, which is globalocityservices.com or my law support and resources website, which is called forsythialaw.com. Be sure to join us next Saturday when our guest will be Steve Deinhart, who runs something and created something called Moolah Pitch, which is a crowdfunding platform that helps Wisconsin residents support Wisconsin businesses. And Stephen will share with us about what crowdfunding is and isn't and how to be successful at it. It'll be a great lesson, I promise, so be sure not to miss it. And until then, I'm Doris Nagel, wishing all of you entrepreneurs happy entrepreneuring.